Hey guys, Jason Diaz back with you for another episode of the Stroke Special Interest Group Podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Sandra Billinger, to talk about physical activity and exercise after stroke. I think we all know just how important exercise and physical activity can be for our patients, but how do we get them to do it? It's certainly a struggle of mine for some of my patients to, to get them to be more active. So Dr. Billinger joins us to talk about ways that we can encourage our patients to be more active and exercise more. She also talks a little bit about exercise testing and proper dosage of physical activity and exercise. Just to give you a little more background about Dr. Billinger, she's an associate professor at the University of Kansas, where she is also director of the REACH Lab. Dr. Billinger's research interests are in examining the cardiovascular and pulmonary changes that occur in people after stroke, the cellular mechanisms that influence vascular function after stroke, and how exercise as a therapeutic intervention may affect or improve vascular health. She is also a fellow of the American Heart Association. So, please check out the episode, and here we go. All right, so I'm very excited to be joined by our guest today, Dr. Sandra Billinger. Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So our topic for today, we're going to be talking about physical activity and exercise after stroke. And I think as physical therapists, we all know how important exercise and physical activity are and can be for our patients. But I'll have to admit, you know, I try to encourage my patients to be active, but I don't really follow up sometimes. and I don't know how, you know, truthful they're being about how active they are. So how active are individuals after stroke? In my, in my experience, most individuals after stroke tend to lead um, sedentary lifestyles. I've had some um, um, patients that return to physical activity or running marathons, but in my you know, course of, of being a physical therapist, most individuals tend to live sedentary lifestyles. Uh, and talking with them, many times they're not really sure if they should go to a gym, um, you know, how to advance their exercises. So I think most people tend to, um, you know, maybe not seek out those answers or not have um, a gym available where they feel comfortable going, um, maybe not have transportation. So typically what we see is that individuals do tend to live fairly sedentary um, uh, lifestyles. And then, of course, this would be, um, you know, more if somebody is non-ambulatory. I, I think that a lot of times the, in the literature when we look at people's uh, cardiorespiratory fitness or their aerobic fitness, we also see that these values tend to be really low. Um, and this is an important measure of your overall health um, as, as, as aerobic fitness is really tied to cardiovascular uh, comorbidities and also uh, mortality in itself. Okay, and so how, how can we, if we're evaluating a patient, how can we tell if, if they are getting enough physical activity? Well, as you uh, said in your first question, you know, maybe you don't know if they're actually telling the, you know, the, the truth or you're getting at the answer, but sometimes when I've asked people if they've been doing their physical activity, they'll show me their uh, step counter or their, their watch, or some people will show me, send pictures of, of of their exercise bout. So digital uh, content sometimes is really nice to have uh, in this day and age. Um, but I think having that conversation and just asking them, uh, especially around physical activity 
And I like to ask the question of what does a typical day look like for you? And this gives me an idea of, of really just the activity level. Uh, at this point, it doesn't have to be about exercise, but what does your typical day look like? And if it's eat breakfast, you know, sit in the chair, um, you know, I, I, you know, I might get up to, to go to the bathroom or cook lunch, but for the most of the day, I sit in my, my chair. Um, certainly at that point, we would want to have the conversation about seeing if we could um, ask them if they're interested in improving their physical activity levels. We can talk about the importance of it and then, you know, trying to get them to um, sit less and move more during uh, their day. Um, so I think you can, you know, simply ask somebody, you know, what does your day look like centered around physical activity? Okay. Now, what about exercise? Now, there's, you know, not just physical activity, but there's a difference between physical activity and exercise. How, are we, how do we evaluate if someone's getting enough exercise? So again, in that respect, I would ask the question, you know, how many minutes a day are you getting of, um, you know, moderate intensity exercise? Um, and, and just kind of ask, are you meeting the recommendation? Do you do 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise? Do you uh, do, and, and also it's really important, I think, as physical therapists to um, clarify what that moderate intensity is. And, and again, the way we've looked at this uh, and defined it, you know, in our physical activity guidelines um, that, that have been written is, you know, it can be going upstairs. It can be a brisk walk. I also tell people, you know, you might feel short of breath while you're doing an activity. You might feel your heart rate go up. And, and these are definitions of moderate intensity exercise. And then just gauging how many minutes a week, um, you know, do you feel like you meet those, those, those guidelines. Um, for people with stroke, um, it, it really doesn't differ than what we recommend for the general population. Again, the idea is to sit less, move more. You should be physically active every day. Uh, and then um, getting the, the 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. And again, just repeating that it's stair climbing, brisk walking, um, you know, feeling a little bit short of breath is, is normal. Uh, and that heart rate could um, increase. If you want to think about, you know, evaluating, uh, you know, how physically active somebody is or their exercise, the six-minute walk test is a good measure of, of community um, or walking endurance. Um, it doesn't really get at somebody's aerobic fitness per se, but you can certainly measure their, their walking endurance, and that's uh, one way to, to do that. Uh, if you want to be more prescriptive or really get an assessment of their, their aerobic capacity and see, you know, um, whether the exercise intervention is, is beneficial or what their baseline is. You can do uh, conduct submaximal exercise testing uh, or you can do a graded exercise test like similar to a cardi cardiac stress test. Uh, you can do that without metabolic gas or with metabolic gas to really look at their aerobic fitness. Okay, yeah, I really like the idea of the, the six-minute walk test. That's something I've, I've used a lot, and I'm amazed at how, how much improvement a patient can have. And it really seems to motivate a lot of patients because they can make such a huge improvement in a short period of time for, for some patients. It's really, it's just all about becoming more active and starting to move more. Um, so, yeah, I like that idea for sure. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that 100%. I you know, in the six-minute walk test, people, 
get an idea of, you know, whether they had to stop during the test or rest, or they didn't, you know, walk the full six minutes, or maybe they were slower. I mean, most people, you know, can, will know if they're, you know, doing better or not. And, and as you said, it's, it's when you, when you have somebody that's uh, leading a sedentary lifestyle, and they make those even small improvements and just Mm -hmm. becoming more physically active uh, and being more upright and not sitting all day long. It is very, uh, like you said, you've observed, you can see that people are making improvements in those, those outcome measures. And certainly for somebody whose goal is to walk or to um, go to the grocery store, maybe play with their kids or grandkids at the park, mm-hmm. um, you've seen those improvements on the six-minute walk and the, the participants or the individuals know that you know, that's going to lead to more activities they like. It, it certainly helps with motivation and participation. So I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely helped a lot with my patients and their motivation. But I definitely still find, uh, you know, it's challenging to, to really motivate some patients to be more active. It's probably the biggest challenge I face. You know, no matter how much I educate patients sometimes um, to try and be more active, it, you know, they just don't seem to, to want to do it. Um, and, you know, having these deficits that they have makes, you know, activity even harder. And like you mentioned, a lot of these patients may have already been pretty sedentary beforehand or and maybe even more sedentary now. So do you have any, you know, effective strategies for trying to encourage patients to be more active, physically active at home? You know, I, I think, it, you know, that conversation about what does your day look like? And, you know, how can we work together to, um, you know, work towards a common goal and understanding what their goals are. I think it's always important to ask the participant or the patient or the individual, you know, what are your goals? Um, I, I am not certified in motion, motivational interviewing, um, but I've certainly sat through uh, CEUs and I've, I've listened to lectures and, you know, it's all about framing the message. And again, I'm not an expert in this. And, and so I'm, you know, I can't give recommendation or guiding, but I do know, you know, listening to the participant and what their goals are and trying to understand if the goal is to move more, how do we work together to get you to that point? You know, what barriers do you have? And again, starting sm- small with, with steps to where the individual can be successful, I think is, is really important. Um, I've certainly learned a lot in my um, physical therapy career. You know, there were times, I, you know, I, I'm a trained exercise physiologist, so I was <laughs> very regimented in my, you know, we've got to get your heart rate up to this. And I was very prescriptive. And as I got into physical therapy and started working um, you know, with patients with disabilities or who had been in the hospital and really listening to what difficulties or barriers people perceived or had or experienced. How do I start with a goal that they want and make sure that the, the, the steps in between are attainable to keep them motivated? Um, you know, educating people that, yes, we sometimes we take a step back and maybe we don't reach our goals, but how do we keep moving forward and to keep patients motivated? And it, it, it's not easy, um, but it's certainly when you have that open two-way communication, I think it helps people to not be um, you know, taken aback by, oh, I have to do this exercise in a certain prescription, and if I don't do this, then it's not going to help me. 
Um, I think that sometimes people think the message needs to be that I have to go to a gym and lift all these weights and be in a treadmill and be all sweaty. And, and that's not really what you have to do. And again, it's starting small, it's moving more, sitting less and finding the activities that, that they enjoy. Somebody tells me all they can do is, you know, march in place for two minutes. I'm, I'm going to start there because that's what they're willing to do and are willing to try. And then we just build on that. Yeah. Now, now what about exercise when we're, when we're trying to encourage exercise? How specific should we be about, you know, what we're saying, you know, getting into starting to get into like dosage now with exercise? I think it depends on, again, I'm just going to go back to the goals of the participants. And, and again, if they're willing and you're looking at the exercise, you know, how, how do you want to, to progress or move forward? And so, again, if, if the individual is, if, if they say, you know, I don't want to go to a gym, I don't have the ability to, to do that, I, I don't like the fill of exercise, I'm going to look at that low intensity and that is, are you willing to, you know, walk for 10 or 15 minutes? Or, you know, again, I'm just using a, a time frame, but, you know, will they start at one minute? Will they start at five minutes? Can we work up to 10 or 15 minutes? Can I work up to three times a day for five to 10 minutes? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them the questions about what they're willing to do. Uh, I think low intensity, again, for people who are ambulatory, um, they have the ability, and if they have, they're motivated to walk, getting out and moving and walking. So that could be walking around the block, um, gardening, vacuuming, um, you know, again, going up the stairs if, if they can, um, walking with a family member, uh, walking the dog. You know, certainly there's been a lot of studies show that people that have pets uh, that require somebody to take them for a walk, uh, people tend to get more steps per day. So I think from that perspective, that would be the recommendations for, for low intensity. If you just need a, a place to start to, to help okay. your patient do exercise, I think that's a really good start. If you want to be prescriptive and your goal is to really do an assessment and think about, uh, again, that dosage or if you're thinking about safety or, you know, I don't really know what my patient can do, so I need to assess them and then I want to prescribe exercise. To me, that's a little bit different. And, you know, again, either doing it by what's their heart rate in the six-minute walk test. I like to do submaximal tests. That gives me a really good idea where I'm not pushing them into a zone that, you know, um, where I worry about that upper high near maximal effort. But a mm -hmm. submax test gives me a lot of information. It gives me kind of that mid to upper range to that 75 to 85% of their um, age predicted heart rate max, uh, which again will give me uh, an idea of what they can do and uh, what they can tolerate, you know, when do they want to stop the test? What's their heart rate at that test? Because if they can, if they wear a device or have a watch or monitor their heart rate, then you can give them a heart rate range that you want them to get into when they're at home or if they do go to some type of gym or community center. Or maybe they take classes and they can monitor their heart rate. Maybe Zumba, um, you know, different dance classes. Maybe they go to church activities where there's dance or, or different things, and they can monitor their heart rate. So I l like those submaximal tests. Um, and again, we um, 
uh, we've developed a, a submaximal test for a recumbent stepper um, uh, that we uh, have used in an in inpatient uh, stroke rehabilitation. I've used it in the community. Uh, certainly any treadmill submax test is appropriate or a cycle test. Um, any one of those are, are available. Um, and then if you really want to, to assess their aerobic fitness and get what their max is and prescribe exercise in this way, um, you know, you're looking at doing similar to a cardiac stress test where you're hooking them up to EKG uh, or maybe a polar heart rate monitor, um, but most typically have an EKG. There may or may not be a physician present and you're using, um, you know, oxygen gas, metabolic gas to assess their aerobic fitness and how well they're utilizing um, oxygen. And I would say that the, the last option um, is probably the least used um, both in, you know, rehabilitation setting or, um, you know, physician. Most don't, you know, require ask that and most of that is done in, in um, uh, research studies. Yeah. So you mentioned the, uh, the testing that you did with with the recumbent stepper, I'm kind of curious, how do you do a, how do you do your submaximal exercise testing on the recumbent stepper? Yeah, so um, I would say, you know, the, the, um, the article that we have really outlines um, that, that paper. And then on my um, lab website, if you Google um, Billinger and Reach Lab, R-E-A-C-H-L-A-B. Mm -hmm. uh, it should come to my website, and I actually have a YouTube video there that shows you how to um, how to do it. I walk through all the steps. We have all the paperwork that's free and um, available for people to use. I've done numerous um, CEU courses where I go in and, and really just teach people how to to use it and how to prescribe exercise um, from there. Um, but what we do is we, we modeled it um, after an already developed exercise test on the bike and really just modified um, that for the, the recumbent stepper. And so what we do is we have everybody start out at 30 watts. Um, we have typically people with stroke step at a rate of about 85 to 95 steps per minute. And it can be somewhat variable in the range as long as they find kind of their comfort zone. I mean, it's really hard to do exactly 95 steps per minute in this, yeah. you know, right? There's some variability because it's mm -hmm. not like a treadmill that where the belt's going and you know that you're exactly at 3.5 miles an hour. But what you don't want is for somebody step at 60 and then go to 80 and then 90 and then 60 and 112 because that will affect their heart rate. But what we do is, um, you know, we have somebody exercise for the, for the first three minutes at 30 watts and we get a measure of what their heart rate is because we have them wear a polar heart rate monitor. And then what I really like about this test is, um, again, this was already established, is that, um, is that there's, four, there's four different heart rate zones. And so again, if somebody's heart rate is below 80, you're going to, you know, adjust them to 125 watts, which is really a big jump. And only, you know, I've only seen like athletes and, and individuals be able to, to do that large of a jump. Um, and then there's the heart rate between, you know, 80 and, and 90 beats per minute. Um, and then you move to 100 watts from there. You know, there's another heart rate range. Um, I think it's 90 to 100, and then you uh, start at 75 watts, 
And then if you're above 100 beats per minute at the end of that three minutes, the next mm -hmm. watts would be 50. And that's where we see those last two are where most um, people post-stroke usually end up. Now there's a caveat. Um, okay. if, if your patient's on a beta blocker and <laughs> their heart rate's below 80 and they've had a stroke or really deconditioned, like you wouldn't want to go to 125 watts, right? Because yeah. they're not going to be able to do it. So again, there's some clinical reasoning and, um, you know, we kind of go through this when I do CEU courses. Um, but so then each stage is, is three minutes in, in length and the individual, you're recording the heart rate um, at every three minute uh, intervals. And, um, you know, and you have them, them go and give the RPE. And again, you're looking at that heart rate. So let's say somebody does two stages of they finish their first, you know, round of, of exercise at that 30 watts for three minutes. And then you move them to 50 watts. And let's say they finish that. And then the next um, would be the 75 watts. And let's say they get a minute in and they say, I'm done. Mm -hmm. So you know what their threshold is and you know what their heart rate is at what they're willing to go where they feel too fatigued to go on. Like this is my end point. I can't go anymore. What's really nice is that you have in that 30 Watts at the end of that heart rate range, let's say their heart rate was 105 and their heart rate at the end was where they said, you know, I can't go anymore. It was 128. Well, now you have a range at which you can prescribe exercise. So if you're going to give them, let's say they were at 30 watts, and you say, you know, I want your heart rate to be in this, you know, right around this, or I know your heart rate's going to be this, or start at 30 watts, at least you have, you know what they, where they can get to. You know they can get up to 75 watts, but that's not ideal because that's near where they were done exercising. But now you have a range from 30 to 75 at which you can prescribe exercise, and of course, telling them, you know, here's what I want your heart rate to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I like that. And it's something, you know, I think those type of machines are often we find them in clinics and, um, you know, I never really thought about doing an exercise test on them. So I, I like that idea. Of, what? Really? Um, no. <laughs> I have heard that many a times. So, yeah, I, you know, and I think, you know, I, when I, I teach in our um, DPT program and I teach cardiopalm um, PT course. And so, you know, we talk about exercise um, testing. Um, we talk about exercise prescription and how you interpret uh, a submaximal, submaximal test and how you, you use that. So I always tell them there's no excuse for them. If I happen to visit a clinic, you better not just be put them on, put them on some bike or a, a recumbent stepper and, and just having them, you know, warm up randomly. I yeah. think, you know, I, I hear that a lot. Well, I just put them on and let them warm up. But there's an opportunity there mm -hmm. for, you know, um, for the potential for, hey, let's do this test. And, um, and then um, now I can, you, it's not necessarily a warm up, but now you have a range at which you say, hey, while you're doing this and I'm finishing up here, you know, let's set you to 45 watts and I want you to keep your pace at, you know, 80 steps per minute. Um, and now you have something that's going to be beneficial to them versus just having them warm up on the, the stepper device. My other favorite, which I've, you know, I have, I have actual data for is um, a lot of times people will say, you know, I don't have time to, to do that. Yeah. 
And so I always ask the question, do you do a six-minute walk test? And, you know, most people say, well, yeah. And I say, it takes me less time to set up to do my submax test than it does the six-minute walk test. Yeah. Okay. And in inpatient stroke rehab, when we were doing our, our data, most people did not go over six minutes. Yeah. So time is, is yeah. you know, when I, you know, and then everyone just, you know, in courses will just look at me and say, oh, they say, yes. yeah, there's, there's no excuse anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I think it's just reframing. Uh, it's, it's getting people comfortable with it. It's getting people, you know, um, just, you know, used to something a little bit different. I've had therapists say, you know, well, can I use an O2 SAT monitor to do it? And I would say, if that's all you have, then, you know, yes. Is it ideal? I would prefer the heart rate monitor because it syncs with the device. In the, the case of the, the test that we used and the, the stepper that we used, the, the heart rate monitor uh, synced with the device. So, um, but if you don't have that, you know, certainly pulse ox is, is, is doable. And if, if, if it means that you can better prescribe for your patient and we can use some objective measures, to prescribe our exercise, then yes, use the pulse ox to do that. I, I really believe in trying to modify different things for our practice so that we can still do things in an objective way and, and potentially prescribe if, if it's an option to do that. Yeah, I, I definitely really like it. It's something I'm going to have to start trying. And it, it also kind of makes me think about, you know, something I'm guilty of, and I'm sure a lot of other clinicians are of, of not making our exercise intense enough and um, probably because we're not doing these submaximal exercise tests as much as we should. Um, yeah, I think, you know, and it's, it is a challenge and, you know, and I, I certainly will, you know, I, every course I go and it, it doesn't matter whether I do them nationally in the U S um, I've done, you know, these, um, you know, pre, um, pre-cons, um, and, and it doesn't matter where I go. The, the barriers are always the same for the physios, physical therapists, and that is, you know, equipment, time, mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of it is uncertainty. And so I'll always tell people at the end, I'm like, well, we have crossed off uncertainty. By the end of this, we should have crossed off uncertainty. Um, but again, you know, if you don't have equipment, six-minute walk test works fine to get a heart rate. The, the hard part with that is that it's self-paced. And so if somebody gets tired, let's say they start out really fast because they're gung-ho, but, you know, by three minutes in, they slow their pace. Well, at the end, you don't really get an accurate heart rate of, of you know, what their capabilities are, which is why I like, you know, sort of a well, is that's why I like the uh, exercise test, even if, again, if it's submaximal to, mm -hmm. to get that. Um, and then asking what their RPE is, because at each stage, you know, you know, what, where they are, um, you know, in that so that you can also prescribe exercise. Um, and then if you don't have a heart rate monitor uh, or the, or the participant do doesn't, um, you know, I also use the talk test for, for exercise, which again, I think is something to, to think about. Uh, I'll tell, uh, therapists and, 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 um, you know, stroke patients when I'm treating patients or, or participants, if they're in research and that is, you know, I, 
if I want them to engage in low intensity activity for 20 or 30 minutes, I, I always tell them during this time, you should be able to talk and sing. You should be able to hold a tune. If I want you to do moderate intensity exercise, you still should be able to carry a conversation. You might feel, you know, you might be breathing a little bit differently, but you should be able to talk to yourself or a, a person walking next to you. But you should be working hard enough that it's a struggle to really carry a tune and sing. Uh, and then if, you know, somebody's, if somebody tells me I was doing this exercise and I, I was really short of breath and I couldn't talk and I definitely couldn't sing, then I might say you're working too hard. You need to back down. So that's some ways where people... You know, they may not be sure how to measure their heart rate or, you know, they told me this RPE scale. I can't remember what an 11 is, but the, the talk test is a way to actually um, also help reduce any barriers to, mo to monitoring their exercise intensity. Okay. So let's say we, you know, we're encouraging these moderate level of physical activity or we're giving this heart rate range. Um, do you have any concerns, like safety concerns, when we're trying to encourage um, higher intensity exercise with some of our patients after, you know, having a stroke, knowing they probably have some other comorbidities or cardiovascular issues? Yeah, so I, you know, there's a lot of interest in um, our profession and, and, and really across uh, the exercise community, um, healthcare. Uh, you know, the idea of high intensity interval training yeah. for and this is just my perspective and I'm not backing this with evidence, but my perspective is if I'm going to ask somebody to do high intensity interval training, I, I would want to know that they're safe and to do an exercise test. Um, if I'm really going to be pushing and prescribing that high intensity, I think for low intensity exercise, you don't need the exercise test. I'm not, uncomfortable prescribing that because movement is good for us and we should move as much as we can throughout our day. The likelihood of somebody having an adverse event during low, and again, this isn't 100% guaranteed for every person on this earth that we, you know, treat as our patients, but the, the, it, you know, the risk of having a heart attack is greater if you're sedentary than if you're moving. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's that, that I'm very comfortable supporting that. Uh, moderate intensity, it's the same thing. You know, people go up and down stairs in their daily activity. They walk up and down hills. Some people walk faster. I am comfortable with moderate intensity. Again, this is mine. I'm, I'm very comfortable with prescribing, um, you know, on the, the lower end without any type of testing, the lower end of moderate. Yes, you feel a little short of breath. You know, you might be walking up a hill, walking the dog at a fast pace, playing with your grandkids. You might get short of breath. Um, but then I always say, you know, if you have some unusual pain, you need to stop and, you know, see your physician or let me know. Um, so I don't have concerns about low and, and moderate intensity exercise. Again, the, the ranges have changed over time to where I think these are things that happen in our daily activity. And again, the sedentary behavior over and over and over in the literature has been linked to uh, mortality uh, and um, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events. And now we're even looking at it in vascular health in the prevention of dementia and vascular dementia. So I think the idea of movement at low and moderate intensity, um, I worry about 
unless somebody has overt cardiovascular disease or something else going on. But again, for most people, the I really encourage people to move at those low and moderate intensities. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk okay. about some of your recent research. You, so you started looking at cerebral blood flow, and I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what you've been um, studying and what you've been finding. Yeah, so I've, you know, I've done a lot of work in the exercise testing world that we've talked about and very, very interested in getting people to exercise. Um, in the early stages of my uh, research career, I was very interested in peripheral blood flow and looking at how, you know, because oxygen delivery to the, the legs is so important or whatever muscles that we're moving and that if you're not getting good blood flow for whatever reason, that can certainly limit your performance and activities, even the six minute walk test or, or exercise. We also know from some of our um, early data out of um, my laboratory and others that we also see these vascular changes. So the arteries um, remodel, uh, they become more stiff, and that reduces blood flow and again leads to atherosclerosis and hypertension. Uh, but we know that exercise can reverse that. So I've spent a lot of part of my career kind of looking at um, vascular health in, in the periphery. And um, I was visiting with one of my um, dear colleagues, Rich Macko, and I'm not sure he'll remember this conversation. But um, we were talking uh, about exercise and stroke, and he said, I really like your vascular data, but Sandy, I think cerebrovascular health is the way to go. And I said, you know, funny, I, I work with people in stroke. I don't think about the cerebrovascular system. <laughs> that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so I started thinking about it and thought, well, how could I get at this? And again, started looking at the literature. What do, what do people do? I'm, I'm skilled in ultrasound techniques. I understand that. And thought a lot about using transcranial Doppler ultrasound and thinking about exercise. You can, you know, put somebody in an MRI and, and look at their resting blood flow or give them CO2 uh, and look at blood flow changes that way. But with transcranial Doppler ultrasound, I can actually look at um, blood flow velocity both at rest and during exercise. So I get an acute response um, with exercise. So I started really looking down or looking at that area of research and, and what that would, would take to, to do that. So in the, probably in 2013, uh, really started to focus my attention and my research on both peripheral vascular, but also now cerebral vascular. And especially, you know, we have a very strong um, exercise and lifestyle uh, intervention focused Alzheimer's disease center here at KU. Mm -hmm. And so um, they do a lot of exercise studies and brain health. And so thinking about my research and their research, we found a lot of common interests. And so I've really started taking off in both healthy brain aging, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's prevention, but also, you know, how can I look at cerebral vascular health um, post-stroke? So I've actually started um, diving into to that a little bit more. So have you seen a difference in um, cerebral blood flow in, in stroke survivors versus other like healthier populations? Have you looked into that yet? 
So, yeah, so we were, initially we got a grant from the American Heart Association. Um, I leveraged an ongoing grant, an R01, um, that Dr. Jeff Bruns um, has. He's a co-director of our KU Alzheimer's Disease Center here. And um, started looking at, at, at data, you know, just looking at um, older adults free of cardiovascular disease or, you know, over who are sort of on that lower end risk versus high risk. And found some interesting um, data. We looked at people who had elevated beta amyloid in their brain and found that people with, you know, higher amyloid actually had a lower response to exercise, um, cerebral vascular response, um, mm -hmm. during an acute bout of exercise than people who didn't. So what we looked at was the change from rest to exercise. And we started thinking about it, and I, I said, you know, this, this change, which isn't what we started looking at, seems very interesting. I wonder if you can model a continuous from rest to exercise. How does blood flow change in that trajectory until you reach your steady state at moderate intensity exercise? Is it a curve? Does it go up like muscle blood flow? Um, we really didn't know, and I looked in the literature, and um, there was nothing published. And I'm going to have to get, take a step back and give kudos. Um, the DPT student who was working with me this in, on a summer project, on a summer T32 project, uh, Sarah Kwapazeski, actually this was her question. She, she actually looked at this percent change. So all the DPT students out there, just say, if you're listening to this, you know, you can make significant uh, impacts to, on research. So she actually changed the way we, we designed our protocols. Wow. Yeah, she's, she's, she was um, uh, an instigator in this case. And so, um, so then it spawned the question for me is, can we model this in a continuous, continuous way? And so we just designed a couple of experiments, kind of, you know, it took us a while to, to get what we thought we could get. And I um, emailed a colleague at K-State, Dr. David Poole, who had done muscle blood flow kinetics and VO2, like oxygen uptake kinetics. And I said, hey, I think we're onto something really novel here. Uh, can you come visit KU and, and um, you know, look at this and tell me if I'm on the right track and am I seeing what I think we're seeing? And uh, we worked with him, and we published our very first paper, which was a methods paper um, in a really small sample because it was a methods paper, but really highlighting what we call the dynamic cerebral vascular response to exercise or the kinetic profile. And what we're doing is we get a resting measure, and, and we can look at the time it takes, which we call time delay, the time it takes for the blood flow where it really starts to follow this exponential rise or this pattern upward until you reach your steady state with exercise. Um, we can also look at the amplitude of the response. So how much above baseline does it, does it get? And then we also get a measure of steady state, which is about three and a half minutes to about four, four and a half minutes sorry, three to four and a half minutes, we average that steady state response. And so we can see, you know, during exercise what that is. So we published it on a group of healthy adults, um, like three older adults. And then we actually had an individual with stroke come and do this protocol. And it was very striking to see the difference between the young, the older adults, and um, this individual post-stroke. 
So then we felt like now that we have this methods paper out, let's really try to dive in and start to look at um, you know, younger adults, older adults, and people with strokes. So we finally in, in finished enrolling our um, group in, in strokes. So we're going to look at them at three months post-stroke and then at six months and see the differences. So we just completed data collection this week. It's a timely question that you're asking. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, but we did an, we did an uh, analysis with um, individuals at three months post-stroke and looked at them um, – compared to age and sex matched adults mm -hmm. and brought them in. And so um, we just also found out this paper is, um, I think this week on Twitter, um, the JNPT, Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, tweeted out that our paper was just accepted. Okay. So for people who are interested in learning more about this blood flow response, um, we actually will have um, if everything works out right, I think it's supposed to be published in the October issue okay. uh, of JNPT. And so it does show that there is a difference on the stroke affected side um, and the non-stroke affected side um, compared to, to older adults who are also, all these individuals were sedentary. So we do see differences in that, that blood flow um, response or that curve to the acute exercise. Now, you know, I have to disclose when you, you know, if you're skimming through the abstract or, you know, maybe you don't read the paper, the, the workload that the stroke um, group did was, was less than the age uh, match control. So that could uh, contribute to that. But their, um, you know, heart rates were a little bit lower, uh, but blood pressure was the same and, and everything. So I think we have to do a deeper dive, but again, we're the first in the, the world to really show kind of this kinetic profile response uh, in stroke and how it's compared to older adults. I'm going to throw a little teaser in there too, because we had, um, happened to have one individual who was really physically active before his stroke and was returning to physical activity when he came in for our study. And we had somebody who was age, similar age, I think one was 52, one was 53, both male. And again, everybody's three months post-stroke. And, um, and you can see a completely different response from somebody who was physically active. Both their resting velocity is higher, but their profile in that response is, looks more like a healthy adult uh, than the person who was sedentary. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. And so, you know, I've even had um, some people say, you know, well, if their blood flow response is, is low like this, should they, you know, even be doing exercise? And, you know, my gut reaction is, what? Well, you know, no, of course they should do exercise. Yeah. But I think what we need to test next is can we improve that profile? Will exercise actually improve their response? And my guess is some of this is blood pressure control, um, you know, being more active, we would see changes, but we don't know yet. We really don't. This is kind mm. of an exciting new frontier that, you know, I have multiple DPT students working in my lab and um, uh, Allison Whitaker, who's a DPT PhD student, and now she's in our PhD part of it. You know, we're all excited about thinking, you know, about research and how we can really answer some really interesting questions, potentially using um, this technology that we developed in the lab, or this methodology is not technology, but this methodology. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to, to 
hear more about some of your research and definitely going to be looking for that article that's coming yeah. out. Um, but th thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us to talk about exercise and physical activity and some of your research. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure to, to be here today, and thank you for the opportunity. All right. I'd like to thank Sandra Bellinger again for joining us to talk about physical activity and exercise after stroke. If you'd like to hear more from Sandy, you can always follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Sandy underscore Reach Lab. Again, that's at S-A-N-D-Y underscore R-E-A-C-H-L-A-B. Keep an eye out for future episodes of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Jason Diaz. Take care.